0: Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week we talk with Cliff Maloney Jr., the president of Young Americans for Liberty. I know what you're thinking. You think that all the kids today dig socialism. Cliff is here to tell you that there is a vibrant liberty movement amongst young people and this is how we're going to change the world. Check it out. Where, where no one, no one really knows what's going to happen, and, and literally right now, millions and millions of people are like, "I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be so cool." Uh, but you are Cliff Maloney, and I, I think I feel like the first thing we, you know, before we talk politics and philosophy and all that stuff, we need to get this out of the way. You're from you're from Eastern Pennsylvania, which um, I love Eastern Pennsylvania, but it's not Western Pennsylvania, sure. where I am from. So. Um, we're, we're more, uh, we're more, we're more civil. On the west side. Yeah, but, but we found of the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. So I'll take credit
1: for that. Yeah. And I did spend some time at Johnstown. That's where I went to school. Was okay. out in Johnstown, PA. So, I've gotten a little taste of the central western PA lifestyle. Yeah. But. Uh,
0: but you you grew up uh, where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up Delaware County, so about 15 minutes south of the city. So diehard Eagles. Flyers, Phillies, Sixers fan. Some seasons better than others, but uh, a lot of my college friends are obviously black and gold. Yeah. So that makes for a fun time.
0: Well, I I I don't want to rub this in, but I feel like when I was your age, all of our teams, the Steelers, <laughs> the Penguins, the Pirates, right. um, we won everything. And I, I just assumed that that's what happened, and <laughs> and eventually I, I came out of that realizing that you don't always get to win, but.
1: Yeah, we've had a really, really rough decade. Eagles winning the Super Bowl was, was kind of a uh, a nice moment, but uh, everybody else is kind of struggling. We did just spend $300 million on Bryce Harper to pull him out of D.C. So we'll see how that pays off for the Phillies.
0: <laughs> as as I recall, nobody else wanted him at some point. <laughs> but that's, that's about the extent of what I can talk about baseball. Don't sure. embarrass me with... Uh, um, with a conversation about that. So this is a drinking show. I'm learning. Um and and part of it is um I've I've done extensive opposition research on you, but I'm gonna wait until you're sort of loosened up, liquored up a little bit, and then sure. I'm gonna then I'm gonna hit you with the hard questions. But this one's comes from my, my buddies at Aslan, right in the area. And this is the exact opposite of what I usually am into. I, I drink like these monster IPAs. This is a barrel aged lager and it's like i don't even know what it is it's 4% so this is this is about as tame as you'll get from I me. was told
1: 10% was the minimum here.
0: Yeah. Well, I was afraid of uh, of your drinking abilities. I didn't want to embarrass you. There you go. Thank you. Um for those of you listening to this, I apologize cuz this beer is beautiful and you'll have to go to YouTube if you really want to see what's going on here. Cheers. Cheers. To liberty. To freedom. I'm kind of hoping. You're the next generation. You're the guy on the ground and I'm hoping that by the end of this conversation, you're going to convince me that everything's going to be okay. We're headed in a good direction. Everything's going to be okay. But let's go back to Philadelphia. Tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and your and your dad and 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 how you discovered liberty.
1: Yeah, so grew up in a pretty standard uh, household. Dad's a manual laborer. Mom works local school district. Um, it's kind of she was an instructional aide and kind of a, a administrative assistant now. But my family was pretty split. A lot of blue collar Democrat politically, you know. Hardworking, um, apathetic, you know, upbringing. Uh, Mom was pretty Christian conservative, voted for George Bush and said she'd vote for him again. Because when I asked her at the time, she said, you know, things are good in life. Um, So very simplistic. But it wasn't until I went to college uh, in 2010. I was studying to be a math teacher and uh, also studying my B.A. in theater arts an interesting mix, and I realized uh, because uh, somebody had said to me, you know, I was talking in one of my classes, and they said, hey, you should check out this guy, Ron Paul. He kind of has that individual liberty, independence streak, stop spending our money, but also you know, civil libertarian, and also with kind of an idea of we should support the troops by bringing them home. Mm -hmm. And I had, I guess, espoused these views in class, and so uh, I watched this YouTube video in 2010, and my life has changed since then. Um, I went down the black hole of watching Ron Paul YouTube videos. And at the end of one of the videos, somebody had recommended a few books and it was road to serfdom and it was Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. And then I started to really dive in and I couldn't understand why aren't other people, you know, in the streets for these ideas. Why aren't people excited? Why aren't people talking about these things? And uh, slowly but surely, you know, I got involved with young Americans for Liberty. I got involved with Ron's 2012 campaign and I kind of dedicated myself to saying, how do we take these ideas and reach normal folks? The people that care about having a beer at night, in college, the people that want to get their degree, or find a girlfriend or boyfriend. And that was kind of the beginning to this whole entire process of me focusing on this.
0: So Ron Paul ruined your life, is, is what he you're saying. He destroyed it, yeah.
1: he destroyed my life.
0: <laughs> you, you glossed over something. I, I heard theater in there, and, and uh, you know, we, we we could save this bombshell for the end, but but I've seen videos of you on stage on stage singing. That's that's what you wanted to do.
1: Yeah, so it was an interesting combination of things I got uh, excited about or interested in or, or passionate about in college. And um, when I was in college, I was studying to be a teacher, but I always liked to perform. Uh, I always liked shows, and so I went out thinking, you know, hey, maybe maybe there'd be a role for me and. Um, I ended up doing uh, six different shows in college as a performer. Uh, I directed three different shows. I stage managed the show. And uh, probably the biggest role I played in college was Billy Flynn, uh, the lawyer in Chicago. Richard Gere uh, played his role in the movie. Uh, But I always play the asshole. Who who did it better? (laughs) I got to have a lot of
0: fun. What Um, would Grace say? Richard (laughs) Gere or Cliff Maloney?
1: I'd hope my wife would side with me on that one. You can find some uh, low-quality YouTube videos to make some comparisons um, but I always end up playing the asshole. It's a, it's a bad character trait of mine. I'm always the antagonist or kind of the, like, um, you know, just the, not, not the person that the audience is going to fall in love with. Um, so I had a lot of fun doing that. I don't know what that says about me, Yeah. but it was, uh, it was something that, that taught me. And I, I mean this wholeheartedly, it kind of prepared me for the political world. Um, I mean, you look around and I feel like there's this desire or this need to kind of connect with people, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't say that in a exciting way. I think it's kind of sad, but being able to emotionally connect or act to draw attention to issues or to represent the cause, um, you see this from a lot of the, you know, uh, the demagogues. I would argue on both sides. Yeah. But it's it's been kind of a a good benefit to have because I can message a little better. Because of some of those experiences.
0: Well, obviously, obviously, our president is a is a media star. He's a he's a top star, um, uh, as much as as being a businessman. He's he's a he's a celebrity. Um, I would argue that Barack Obama was before that, and it, it seems. And and I don't, you know, people complain about this going all the way back to um, Richard Nixon trying to compete with JFK on the first televised debate, but. Politics is a performance, whether we like it or not, and, and communication is how we connect with people. So maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, I don't know, but but it's a necessary thing. It's just the way it is.
1: Yeah, and I think people miss that all the time when it comes to likability of politicians. I mean, people, it's, it's simple to say, some people might say it's elementary to say, but I think people vote and like those they want to have a beer with. Right. Um, you look at this Pete booted boot edge, edge boot edge, edge, however you say it.
0: Can can we drop in? A, I, I, I just say Pete. Right. Mayor, Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Right. I'll, I'll go with that.
1: Right. So I think people are missing the boat on him. I think he's one of the most likable politicians I've seen in the past decade since I've been involved. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he's got to raise money and some other variables have to fall in line. But you can't underestimate that power of just looking at somebody, seeing how they talk, how they interact and being like, I like this guy. You um, see the
0: guy that said that the free market's actually an okay thing. Yeah, I mean, he came out and it's kind of a radical thing for for this democratic primary to actually in a- this day and acknowledge age. that the the engine that that created America it's it's okay.
1: You know, and I'm I'm kind of interested because many of the people you wouldn't expect like Elizabeth Warren even came out and said, you know, capitalism this is a capitalist country I'm sure people are starting to look at the polls, and if you're one of the 19 Democrats, you're probably thinking like, where's my lane? And eventually it's like, well, half the Democrat Party still believes in capitalism in the American way, yeah. so we can't all be over here. Right, so right. I, I'd assume that's why Pete and uh, Elizabeth Warren and some of those guys are going well, to Well, even direction.
0: Nancy Pelosi, a couple of days ago, came out and said that, that she wasn't a socialist. I think right. it's I think it's kind of weird that Democrats have to make that announcement. I'm not a socialist. Um, President Obama had to do that and and uh, uh, Hillary Clinton refused to answer that mm-hmm. question when, when, uh, what's his name from MSNBC? Chris Matthews? Yeah, the loud guy, Chris Matthews. He kept asking her and she, she didn't have a good answer because she was afraid of the socialist wing, the ascendant wing of sure. her party that, that was, was all in for Bernie, but thought that she was an old machine politician.
1: You know why I love Chris Matthews? He's the only one that would call Hillary a war hawk yeah. from MSNBC. Yeah. Anyway, that was just an aside, but he uh, he really owned her on that. He had Rand on the show during one of the Democrat debates and it was just Hillary Clinton's a war hawk and Chris Matthews, I think, is with us on a lot of the war issues, so it's fun to find some allies. So I, I have
0: a story that I've never told publicly. Um, I, I used to do Chris Matthews a lot mm-hmm. and during the twenty sixteen election I was doing a ran I was working for a Rand Paul Super PAC and and I think I think this is the timing. Um, I was on a I was on an episode of Chris Matthews and and he was just so supportive of of Rand's willingness to take on sort of the neocon Republican perspective. It was a totally it was almost like a Rand Paul Love Fest. Mm-hmm. And for reasons I don't understand, the show never aired, and I'm I have a theory as to why it didn't air. But uh, you know, Chris Matthews Matthews would be destroyed by his, his his authoritarian, um, progressive base, I guess. Um, but yeah, he was he was uh, um, he's an interesting guy. Like he, he he'll allow you to talk most of the time, and then the next time he just shuts you down. I,
1: I think you're. It's sad that we've kind of lost this sensible progressive left yeah um, which we you know we have a lot in common with in terms yeah, of yeah what civil happened to the anti-war left and anti-war and that's yeah. the thing I think my favorite memes of the past couple of years have been you know once Trump got elected it was these photos of you know the anti-war left coming back out of the caves like hey we're here again yeah, um, yeah. because I think that issue I, I always tell people I think that that resonates more especially you know with me working with young people I think that issue resonates more than people give it credit Um because there's such ramifications of war. I mean, people die, you know, and there's this impact that is real to so many people. Everybody knows somebody. I mean, in, in the past two decades, being in Afghanistan, I mean, a lot of us know somebody who's either been hurt or killed in the Middle East. So I'm always trying to not get back to that issue, but I think that's a winner for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's such a rarity to find people like Chris Matthews that are intellectually consistent on things like foreign policy and civil
0: liberties. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that certainly um, that was Bernie's issue. Um, I, I think that issue mattered more than than the S word, um, but but of course Donald Trump um, at least talked a lot about non-interventionist foreign policy. He talked about getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, sent Jeb Bush into a into a total tizzy about it, um, and that, that was Ron Paul too. So like there's that there's that untapped opportunity in in politics to galvanize people around around sort of obvious questions. Um, 18 years in Afghanistan, like, does this ever end? Mm -hmm. Or is this never war, never ending war?
1: Yeah, and I think it's an issue that I don't know if people realize how much it did help Trump. I mean, the America first foreign policy, you figured out a way to brand it so it was still strong, uh, wasn't weak, which a lot of libertarians have trouble with because they're seen as just weak. And I think he figured out a way to tap into that. Now I think the rhetoric has been great, some of the actions have not been, um, but I think he's going to play it smart in 2020 and that is he's got to continue that rhetoric of being pro troops and the sentiment from the public is still bring our boys and our girls home yeah um which i i'm always hopeful because that is still public opinion public opinion is still saying i mean in in high majority amounts we've had enough of us being in the middle east like at a certain point i mean one of ron's best lines is you know, everyone's just talking about these issues. Why don't we take the troops from the Pakistani border and bring them home? That way, the people that care about the border are excited and the people that care about bringing the troops home are excited. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's just, it's such a boondoggle and the public supporting it gives me hope that, you know, we haven't lost on this issue, but I'm interested to see the political angles Trump will take, or, or even the Democrats, do they run, you know, they're going to have to contrast with Trump, right? So do they run as... Hey, his America First foreign policy was right, but he's not doing it. Or do they go the Hillary Clinton, neocon war hawk route? Which I think mean, that's bad for the whole country.
0: You have to add Rachel Maddow to that list now. Right. Apparently, right. apparently everybody at MSNBC wants us to go to war with Russia. Um, and I, I should add, like Trump uh, just vetoed um, a bipartisan uh, resolution saying we we should not be helping the Yemen. Saudis in Yemen. Yeah. And that that to me is very inconsistent with this narrative that that Trump is is less interventionist. So, I, I think I don't think we'll know for a while whether or not the rhetoric matches up with with the action on the, or not with Trump. I'm I'm more skeptical of that, but um, I, I love the fact that that Rand Paul is trying to get him in the right direction and and has had some success. Yeah, and so. I
1: think. Uh the one thing I'm always trying to get people to continue to talk about is we still have troops in 120 plus countries, 800, depending on what numbers you look at, 800 to 900 bases around the world. I think that message, I mean, it definitely resonated with me, but continuing to kind of push that narrative of like, look, it's not just the strategic decisions, it's the overall occupation, it's the overall, just the foreign policy, Um, you know, and how do we get that to change? And I think the more we can hammer that home, I still think it's a winning issue.
0: I feel like it's, it's, for for years, it's been the Achilles heel of the Republican Party because you know um, Republicans consistently say a couple things. They they talk about fiscal responsibility, although they're talking about it less today mm-hmm. as we as we reach twenty two trillion dollars in debt. But then and they make the argument that that um, despite its best intentions, any program um, will just gobble up a lot of money, have a lot of unintended consequences. There's never enough money to feed the beast except when it comes to national defense. And, and that's why you know, we, use, we used to make tough trade-offs where, where Republicans and Democrats would fight over domestic versus foreign policy spending and they'd split the difference and, and you know, sort of reach some sort of budget goal. Um, ever since a couple years ago, and we can probably thank Paul Ryan for this, now it's we're gonna spend everything on everything and And that's where the the debt comes from, and it's it's this naive notion that when if it's if it's about national defense um the the incentives problems with government don't matter anymore, the unintended consequences don't matter anymore. And it was Ron Paul that said, "Hey guys, um, we're creating more problems than we're solving when we do a lot of this stuff,
1: yeah. And I think it's interesting because the story that, that I heard so many times from Rand Paul on the campaign trail is, you know, they both get on C-SPAN. They both go down to the House floor. They argue, you know, no, we need to prioritize this. The other side is the devil. And then, you know, vice versa. Republicans do it to Democrats. Democrats do it to Republicans. And what do they do? They get in the room and they say, all right, great. We've now got the TV clips. Let's raise spending on everything.
0: right? You know, and like right. you
1: said, they just spend both of the priorities, and it used to be that there was some sort of fiscal sanity. I mean, I I joke about this, but I mean, I would take like a JFK or or somebody who back in the day, I mean, some of these fiscally responsible Democrats who, I mean, it used to be an understanding. You would aim to balance the budget, you know, and if you ran a deficit, I mean, it wasn't just assumed, okay, we're going to print the money or we're going to borrow the money. I mean, we're still not raising taxes, which I think is a good thing. But eventually that, that whole charade ends. Um, so I'm, I always try to put it in the, the, the pretense of like, look, even to my Democrat, more liberal friends, like 20 years ago, we were still balancing the budget. Uh, it didn't matter if it was a Democrat or Republican. And I give them credit. We spent more money under Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of inconsistency and irony in the, the spending you know, rhetoric and the debt rhetoric versus the actual action. But to me, it's like, man, 20 years ago was not that long ago. Yeah. So I think this uh, this trend or this habit, uh, it's going to have some catastrophic consequences.
0: I think, uh, and I think that was sort of the the seeds of the Ron Paul revolution, is that that um, you know he came along in two thousand and eight. You know, I, I worked on Capitol Hill when he was there, and you know, way back when he was a member of Congress, um, he he was the one guy that would vote no, um, but honestly, nobody really knew who he was. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he didn't have a platform unless you happen to be like in that tiny little clique of libertarians that knew about Ron Paul. And, but with the rise of the internet, and it, one of the things that, that Google search did is it exposed the, the blatant hypocrisy that politicians use to sort of basically manipulate and lie to their constituents. And so when he got up on that stage in 2008 and started um, speaking truth to power, um, people are like, finally, and they believed him because he'd always been saying that stuff <laughs> for forty years. <laughs> um, he he was consistent and you know kind of kind of goofy and and but but authentic because it wasn't it wasn't polished, and I, I think I think that was the beginning of of sort of the breakup of, of the old political cartel. And of course I was a, I was a Tea Party organizer and and I, I still remember the day in in two thousand and eight. When the first Wall Street bailout proposed by John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi died on the House floor, and I think I was with one of the few organizations, conservative or libertarian that mm-hmm. was actually opposing the Wall Street bailout. And I'm like, "What the hell just happened?" And of course, it was the internet. Mm-hmm. so so where are we? like the we've we've had the Ron Paul Revolution. We had the Tea Party Revolution. And now it's not at all clear to me that that liberty, is is ascending? You know, Donald Trump himself went after um, Mark Sanford, a, one of the few mm-hmm. uh, federal legislators that I would call a liberty guy. Uh, we just lost uh, who just passed away, Walter Jones. Walter Jones um, is is liberty winning?
1: Yeah, so I think it's a really good question, and I'll I'll tell you, I had a funny conversation. That's the best way to put it. It's about a year, maybe a year and a half ago now. We're in what 2019? About two years, so 2017. Uh, I took over the organization in the end of middle of 2016. And so Young Americans for Liberty had always existed since 2008 under Obama. And Mm -hmm. it was really easy to kind of figure out, you know, where coalitions were, the Ron Paul, Rand Paul world was building. But all that's over now uh, in terms of, you know, kind of this, hey, it's very easy to see the next step at the federal level. And so we took a step back and I had some pretty serious conversations with folks where I said, look you know, we're building chapters on campuses. At what point do we save the republic, right? At what point do we make liberty win? At what point is it like, oh, yeah, here's where we're aiming to go. Um, And so I started to have those conversations. Do we need to educate more? Do we need to deliver better content? Do we need to uh, focus in on certain political offices? Is it about getting a majority in Congress? Or do we just need a liberty caucus in Congress that's, you know, got 25 members and that'll be the, the, the snowball effect. And so we had some really long conversations about this, kind of talking about not just YAL and what YAL is doing, but understanding kind of the broader liberty movement and where we are. Ron Paul is now retired. Rand Paul is back in the Senate, not running for president. Um, and he's crushing it there. Um, and we've got Thomas and Justin, I would argue, are our two big champions in the House. So. I had conversations with everybody, and the more I talked to people, the more it became pretty clear. If we really want to build at the federal level, we're missing something. And that's something that we're missing is we do not have a base across the country of state elected officials. And I'm not going to go into the weeds. I mean, we, we did impact scores of each of the different offices. We looked at you know how you win certain offices and how much money it costs and what type of experience you have to have but everything pointed us to one place. And that was, if we can focus on building a bench of future Ron and Ram Paul's at the state level and mix that with the work that you're doing to build content, the work that all the great organizations are doing to put out policy pieces and content and and educate the masses, but you've got to have that base at the state level. We think it does three things. If you start to build there one, we've got a microphone and a platform for our ideas that, I think we've been missing at the local level. Two, we can actually pass liberty bills in the state house. You want things to become federal policy. I mean, as much as we believe in states' rights, the federal government still looks to the states to advance ideas and to see what have you tested, what works. So passing liberty bills and, sadly, forcing roll call votes on bad bills. When you got champions in the house, you can have a little more control in getting people on the record.
0: Uh, Almost all the uh, bad ideas that make it to the federal level started at the state level. I would 100% of them. That's that's how they do it, yeah.
1: (laughs) And then the third thing being, like I said, a bench, right? If you want to run for federal office or if you want to run for governor, AG, LG in a state, it is the, I mean, it could not be more clear that if you run the numbers, the people that are viable are those that have already been elected. Why? Because they've got a donor base, they've got name ID, and they've got volunteers. And when you have those things, all of a sudden, you've got the infrastructure to run.
0: So, and, they, and they've been tested, so you you, you at least have some more uh, assurance that they're not going to say something uh, career-destroyingly right. stupid.
1: Yeah, and you've seen some of their votes, Yeah, right? So yeah. you can you can have some some interest once they get to the federal level, or you can have some reassurance in that, hey, they're going to go there and keep their spine. Right, right. And so we, we've kind of laser-focused in on the state level. I, personally, I believe it is where the movement has the most to gain, and I think it's the easiest place— place because grassroots voters when you reach them and it doesn't become a name ID or a money game when it's actually hey let's have conversations our ideas win at the state level the universe size of voters is small enough that a candidate with let's say 50 or a hundred thousand dollars which is doable right it's not the millions it takes to win a congressional seat you can actually go out there and you can you can have those conversations yeah so that's where I'm laser focused I think that's the future of Liberty and how we make
0: it happen. You know, so it I- them. I'm a big fan of that strategy and and frankly, that was uh, a glaring Achilles heel uh, for the Tea Party movement. Um, And part of it was unavoidable because the Tea Party burst onto the scene in 2009, 2010, uh, had a tremendous impact, uh, particularly in 2010, 2012. All the guys that we would point to Mm -hmm. as our best voices in the Senate and the House, um, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Justin Amash Thomas Massey um, the only four members of Congress I'll allow into my home by the way <laughs> ter- well Terry ter- Terry decides these things I don't decide these things um, but in a lot of ways they were sort of accidents and 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 we both know where each of them came from but the, the for most of the elections that the Tea Party got involved with you, you were stuck with somebody else's choices and you you could you could uh, Choose based on those two or three options that you had, but but somebody else set the table, and you were you were just going to choose that entree versus that entree, and as a result, we ended up with some real real duds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people that didn't know how to conduct themselves in in front of a camera, people that would say dumb things, uh, people that didn't know how to do basic fundraising or or grassroots organizing. So so the the aspiration was always to get Downstream of that, and make sure that we had good choices of of candidates that actually, a, you believed that they meant it when they said that they were pro liberty, and and equally important, they actually knew how to do the basic nuts and bolts of campaigning. So that that's what you guys are doing, and so in a lot of ways, you're the 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 uh, next generation of of what the Tea Party should have become.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because it's it's. Kind of an educational experience, too, because what we do, the tactic, uh, it's a program called Operation Went at the Door. And we did a pilot program in 2018 where we decided, OK, we're going to take our students. We've built this youth army of pro-Liberty students, and now we're going to deploy them. Let's go out in the community and see if we can get folks excited about our candidates. So we found viable Liberty candidates. I want to be pretty clear about this. Any party. Um, and I mean that, but they got to be viable. And so, did we elect 37 Republicans in 2018? Yes, but I'm open to endorsing folks from the LP or heck, Democrats, independents. You guys, you guys party. did endorse some some libertarians. We we endorsed three libertarians. All yeah. three did not make it across the finish line. But we are very open to if you can find me viable liberty candidates. I care about the principle and the policy, not party. Right. So, trying to find those folks, we deploy students out. We'll typically put them on the ground for let's say a month. But the educational experience, if you're an activist, if you're a young student and you go up to a doorstep and somebody opens the door, you're going to learn more in 24 hours of door knocking than you could ever learn, you know, a trying to go to a seminar or trying to go. I mean, heck, even even our YOW while we're preparing students, you're learning very quickly. Guess what? People don't care about monetary policy. They don't care about these high level liberty positions. We should have them as our backbone and they should be our principal and you should have that because you need a fundamental understanding, but they care about fixing the potholes on main street. They care about safe schools. These are the things they care about. So learning how to take our message and not watering it down, but simplifying it for the everyday voter. That's one of the best experiences we've found that I didn't set out to do. I didn't plan to do that. It just happened because when you have these conversations with normal folks, they're kind of pushing back and you're finding out what are the hot button issues they care about and when you get in the local community it's not the big federal issues it's yeah. the local stuff
0: yeah. i used to complain about the consultant industrial complex <laughs> because because all the all the fat cat consultants certainly in the republican party i think the democratic party has a different set of problems because of a different institutional structure but you know everybody wanted to do a big ad buy and there was, a, there was a sort of a corrupt reason why that was so, because you would, you would take a, a, a mm-hmm. skim, right? You would take a piece. And if you're, if, if you're running a $5 million Senate campaign and it's all TV ads, um, win or lose, the consultant's gonna go buy a yacht afterwards. Right. Um, it's hard to like, make bank knocking on doors, because it's just hard work. Grassroots organizing is hard work, and, and they haven't exactly figured out where to take the skim which I think is a strategic advantage for liberty candidates who are actually doing a ground game.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I joke with investors, with students, because people ask me all the time, like, well, how did you guys you know, land on door knocking? Well, it's pretty simple. If somebody writes a check to somebody for a million bucks, okay, and you're trying to make political change, anyone with money can do the digital ad, can do the TV ad, can do the radio ad, can send mail, it's it's a cost, right? You have a production team. I mean, you guys put together great content. People hire production companies, and they can make the ad buy. And you're right; there's a reverse incentive there, and then a lot of them are making money off it. Yeah. But what you can't buy, there are companies that'll you know do paid door programs, but you cannot buy passionate young activists who are there because they believe in something. And look, when we do these programs, I, I tell people, everyone assumes, oh, we're we're bussing in people, and it's you know volunteers. No, we find our top activists that we've trained through our work on campus and at our YALCONs, we pay for their housing, we give them a gas stipend, we pay for Gatorade, snacks, and I give them a $2,000 a month stipend. So they're not losing money, but they're definitely not making a bu- bunch of money, but it's, it's, it is a program that is supposed to show, look, we know you care about these ideas. We want to motivate you to do the work that nobody else wants to do. Nobody wants to door knock. You got to deal with people slamming doors in your face, you got to deal with, you know, a take rate, let's say only one out of every 4 people's home, but the power is everybody's getting a million mailers and they're tossing them in the trash. When a 19-year-old female comes up to your door, especially in a Republican primary, you're thinking, "Man, she's canvassing for Bernie." Right. And then she says, "No, I'm here to support one of the Republicans." You're like, "Who? Who's this Republican that's recruiting young people? We, you know, this is great for the party." Yeah. Whatever it is that they're thinking, that is what's motivating them because we're doing that extra step of having the face-to-face conversations.
0: Where did where did this? Uh, I mean, it's it's very much an ethos with uh, the sort of the Ron Paul. I call them the Ron Paul kids. Mm-hmm. I probably have to stop doing that because I'm not not even sure that this generation of young people
1: college students are Ron Paul. If you like, do a poll, more, uh, college students know Ron Paul. Their their awareness of Ron Paul is almost twice as high as Ron Paul now.
0: Yeah. And, and that makes sense to me, and I think, I also think that, that, that Mr. Mr. Google um, gives a thousand points of entry mm-hmm. to these ideas. I mean, you're, you're a Ron Paul kid, I was an Ayn Rand kid. Sure. Um, I suppose the generation before me, maybe they were like a road to serfdom, Frederick Hayek <laughs> kid, like there wasn't, you know, back then there were very few ways to find these things, so, so I read a novel. Um, you you watch Ron Paul on YouTube, and there's a whole generation that sort of represents that. But but now it's more diverse. But this this ethos of uh, very much uh, the ethos of y'all, and and I would argue the whole Ron Rand movement is all about the ground game. It's all about bottom up. Um, I'd like to to think that comes from our libertarianism, but it it looks a lot like um, what the left does so well. But where did it come from? Did you did you did you steal it from the left? So.
1: I would argue it's because we have passion. Now, I think the left gets their energy more because it's, hey, we have to come together to stomp out the hate. And it's it works. You know, I mean, it it does work. The rhetoric that they use, you know, to to get people to step up works. But I think it's about having a passion for the principles we care about. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's why they always joked. I mean, Hillary Clinton and Mitt Romney have both made public statements about how fanatical the Ron Paul and Rand Paul folks were, you know, like they'd be out in the middle of the rain. And I think that's because there's a deeper-rooted philosophical you got, you got
0: kicked out of CPAC, for God's sake. <laughs> right. Nobody so, gets kicked out of CPAC. <laughs> right, so there's, there's this
1: belief that's deeper that people can't touch, that it's difficult for people to understand because it's not just a one-off campaign. It's a legitimate campaign to advance the principles of liberty. And I think that is what drives a lot of individuals that's what the passion that's what it's there for and i think i always tell candidates a grassroots candidate has to run a grassroots campaign if you think you're going to run as a grassroots candidate because you believe in the ideas and then all of a sudden you're going to try to spend what the establishment spends yeah it's not going to work so you have to tap into that grassroots because that's the only advantage you have is that your supporters your volunteers they actually believe in something enough to get off their ass and go out and support it yeah so we've got to continue to tap into that.
0: So there's there's a there's a nugget in there, and I, I hope it's true. I uh, I'd like to believe it, but uh, um, the 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 professional left, and, and I shouldn't call it the professional left, the activists who who, who would deep canvas for Bernie, um, I feel like they're in a lot of ways motivated by the same kinds of things that would motivate like a Trump activist. You know, economic anxiety. You know, fear that the system is rigged. Um, Rage against the machine, but also sort of this Alinsky style. Let's set up a straw man of who who the enemy is, mm-hmm. and and so they're motivated against the other team. Um, I think what you're saying is that a lot of your young people are motivated by a set of principles. Is that overstating it?
1: No, I think that's spot on. I think. I think there's something to be learned from Bernie, and from Trump, and from folks yeah. that can set up this David versus Goliath, you know, little guy versus the machine. Yeah, there's there's power in that, and I think that Ron and Rand, they presented that message, maybe not as straw man focused, but the idea that the American people- well, the machine people, is
0: real, I, and raging against it is righteous, right.
1: um, and that the American people are getting screwed. Yeah, you know, by the banking system, by yeah. this military-industrial complex. So. I think they just weren't as, what's the word here? They weren't as picturesque that it was very clear, here's the devil mm-hmm. and we're the good guy. Mm-hmm. But it was more these issues help the little man. These issues help everybody. And I think that Bernie, AOC, uh, a lot of people have done a really good job of kind of tapping into that emotion of we all need to come together to defeat the monster.
0: Right. And right.
1: I think for us, you're right. What the nugget for us was, yeah, the monster is things that are antithetical to liberty, and that's what we're trying to go after.
0: So I was, um, I, I spoke on Rand Paul's behalf at the Iowa caucuses, and and what, what I learned that night that I didn't fully appreciate before that was that the, the Ron Paul block of votes, you know, our assumption going in to Iowa was that we could, uh, that Rand could deliver Ron's votes plus. And it turned out to be the opposite because I, I think Rand got what I would call the Liberty vote, but the rage against the machine, I don't trust Washington, D.C. vote, which was part of Ron's message, went to Trump. And so I, I, think, I, think, I think it's an advantage that, that, that we actually care about principles. I think it's an advantage that, that Liberty has this, this beautiful cooperation-based vision for how people can get along but it's gotta be both. It's gotta be sort of a libertarian populism. We, we, we should be pissed about what Washington is doing to us, um, but that's not enough. Um, we should be optimistic about, about how it is that free people um, create opportunity and make people more prosperous, but that's not enough. It's gotta be some combination.
1: Yeah, and I think that uh, I agree with you when it comes to the liberty vote. We did a lot of number crunching afterwards. You figure Ron got about 22,000 votes in 2012 our numbers show about 8,000 of those were like hardcore Liberty people, but then you still have 14,000 left. And those 14,000, yeah, you could say half of them just voted for the craziest SOB in the room. You know, the rage against, you know, some of them probably split for Bernie, which is odd
0: to people, but it makes sense. The quote Thomas Massey.
1: Right, right, yeah, yeah, the craziest guy on the ballot. Uh, And then other people voted, you know, let's say there were hardcore homeschoolers that voted Ron. Well, there were plenty of homeschoolers in the race in 2016. Yeah. And so you had some of these other pro-life folks that voted for Ron in 12 that, that, you know, there was kind of segments that split, but I think it goes to show you why I think we need to build Mm -hmm. uh, at the local level, why we need to kind of lay down these roots, because when you go to run at the national level, it's much more about the sentiment of the country or it's, it's much more about getting lucky and timing and different things are in place where if you could tell me in 10 years, we could elect 500 Ron Pauls to the state house What are they going to do? They're going to run for higher office and eventually you're going to end up with people who we can be in the position, not that the establishment's ever going to try to court us, but I think it's just a difficult thing to do to try to ramp up, have enough populism that you're you're taking the message of liberty, not watering it down, but that the, the issues of the day will resonate. I mean, if the presidential election was in 2013 or 2014, we could have a President Paul right now. You know, if if privacy, you know, the the the. Bringing the troops home, that sentiment was really there. The whole filibuster—I mean, everything was kind of tipping at the right point. Um, But then when ISIS pops up, and it's like, you know, like what are we prepared as a movement to message on certain issues? I think the more we build that infrastructure, the more prepared we'll be for any issue.
0: Yeah, and and the the mechanics of of making sure that that we have a lot of voices. Um, I. I, I love Ron Paul but the Ron Paul movement was really built on Ron Paul's persona mm-hmm. and and I happen to believe that any movement built on a person is is dangerously weak in the sense that you know that uh, Ron Paul's the exception most of those go, those guys go native when they come to Washington DC right. so you build a movement on a guy and all of a sudden he's 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 part of the swamp and you've done nothing um, so So having, having, you know a leaderless movement has thousands of leaders. So I, I love the strategy. Let's Let's pivot a little bit um, because you guys aren't just about politics, not at all. And I, I think the opposite is probably mm-hmm. everyone loves to talk about politics because it, it's, it's so tangible and, and they want to know what's going to happen in the next election. But um, Young Americans for Liberty is a very ideas based thing. You just had this awesome video talking about about peace versus force. What's what, what's selling on college campuses right now?
1: Yeah, and I want to say this. A lot of people, when we launched this Operation went at the Door, they said, oh, gosh, are you guys moving from education to politics? Well, no, it's actually the opposite. We're doubling down the education because the only way the political stuff works of us going out into the community is if we're continuing to build a robust pipeline of student activists. Well, to do that, we need to educate them. We need to reach. We need to do events on campus that are going to, Stimulate the mind and get people to ask questions. So, as an organization, we've always been laser focused on what we call campus activism. You know, to those at home, think street theater, right? right? Doing things on campus that are fun, uh, erecting displays this is and getting where that
0: people. Drama degree. Comes right, in. exactly. Right. Get,
1: yeah. get, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Yeah. But getting people to really have conversations. And there's one rule we use with all of our activism projects we want students to be able to ask themselves, maybe not bluntly, but the, the conversation should be around what is the proper role of government? And I might say that and it might sound wonky or maybe you think it doesn't sound wonky and it's like, well, that's kind of bland. But on campus right now, everything's very emotional. Mm-hmm. Everything's heated. Everything's based in rhetoric and you have protesters and everybody wants to shut down speech because they disagree with it and it's hate speech. And you see this from, I would argue, not just the left. You see this from everybody. It's kind of the, it's the new norm.
0: Oh, so, the right's doing the same thing.
1: Right, and what what happens is if, if we can have that dialogue about the role of government, that's a real conversation. Mm-hmm. So all of our projects are based on trying to get students to at least think and engage and have those conversations. Now, what issues pop out to them? Well, it depends. Um, and it's not really geographically. It's not regionally based. It's just, you know, what are the hot topics of the day? Right now, a socialism versus capitalism debate is a hot topic. People are interested because AOC and Bernie are owning this socialism topic. Other key issues people care about, especially on campus, that we like to focus on are things like the, the the pretty much the lineup of civil liberties. So when you talk about privacy, you talk about the war on drugs, criminal justice reform, ending mandatory minimums, legalizing marijuana. These are all going to be issues that we can kind of talk to people, find common ground and talk about, you know, what's the role of government here and how do these things line up?
0: Um, they're they're great gateway drugs i <laughs> I call them no pun intended but it, I call them sort of transpartisan issues because that lane Bernie would rail about all those things and they're they're all uh, sort of cautionary stories about um big government too much power concentrated power right. and the unintended consequences you know why do we have so many nonviolent kids in prison um maybe it wasn't intentional but it's, it's because we gave the government too much power.
1: Yeah, and I think it's funny because I think you do a very good job at this, and that is telling stories, You know, trying to find ways to kind of relate these issues. Because, I mean, the reason I think young people care about them so much is because it impacts them um, when it comes to privacy, right? I mean— w- I don't want to sound like some old head. I'm 27, but, you know, these Oh, young people are on their cell phones, you know, but it's like, yeah, I mean, we live on our cell phones. Do the students
0: call you an old now? I'm an
1: old American for liberty. But they they live on their cell phones in a way that's, it impacts us. if, If you're telling me the government is able to access these things, the government be able to see, you know, my Venmo transactions and things like this. I mean, there are ramifications and repercussions that all of a sudden are impacting our day to day. And I think our job, is to find stories that are not this far-off, you know, one-off situation. You know, we want to actually present things that people are going through.
0: These are are issues that students can actually relate to. They care about it. It could affect their lives personally.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things you and I have talked about, you know, I I don't talk about it that often, but, I mean, my dad. uh, My dad did close to three years for a, a drug possession charge. And so to me... I didn't get involved in Liberty because, hey, this happened to my dad. I mean, I didn't even know about it until I was in high school, you know, because it happened right before I was born. Um, But talk about something that motivates me. Talk about something that now wants me to get involved to make sure that what happened to him doesn't happen to other people. Um, Because, I mean, look at him now. He's got 30 years sober. He's got a small business that employs six to ten people a year. I mean, he's paying taxes, and he's a— positive member of society, producing things. Yeah. So I think trying to find other stories to get people to engage and to realize you know, that um, I'm not screaming here that we should be doing all types of drugs, but what I'm here to say is, we need to rethink kind of what were the intentions, what are the outcomes, and that these are normal people that we know. I love my dad, yeah. he's a great guy. Yeah. And people that know my dad would say, yeah, that rule was pretty crazy, he had to do three years for drug possession.
0: Right. So yeah. thinking through those things with stories I think helps. And and, and whether or not and you know, I'll, I'll sound like a lefty here, but whether or not putting someone in a cage for nonviolent behavior I, I don't know where I don't know where that came from, but now it's an epidemic in this country.
1: Well, and I, I don't understand how we can have these conversations. Somebody said this to me once, they said, Okay, so do you want people to spend their time because I grew up, drugs are horrible, right? I mean You know, drugs are illegal. Anybody that has drugs, I mean, that's a horrible thing. And and you should be locked up is kind of the mentality because we don't talk about it critically. So somebody has drugs that they're using personally, a choice that they make. And so should the cops spend time, somebody that's got no victim, you know, this is what they're doing with themselves. Or should they spend time trying to catch those that have robbed, have murdered, raped, I mean, horrible crimes, should the time be spent on that? And the first time somebody said that to me, it made me think, yeah. I mean, we've got to make a decision as society. You know, who are bad people? Who are good people? Does the crime match kind of the you know the time that we're giving them? Um, I think those are real conversations that there's stigmas out there that we need to be able to to push through.
0: Yeah, and that um, that to me is one of the advantages of of the liberty message because I, I feel like if if we if we listen a little bit. Think about the stories that we're telling. We can connect with young people on campus who haven't identified as anything, or or maybe they maybe they're Bernie Bros. Who knows? But we, we have a story that that sometimes catches people off guard because it's not it's not sort of knee jerk conservative lock them up.
1: And I would argue about ninety percent of campus is not apathetic, is not conservative, is not libertarian, or excuse me, 90% of campus is apathetic. Yeah. That out of the 10%, you can break that down, different campuses, sure, you're going to have a liberal bent, okay, but there's a lot of people out there that care about getting their degree, and they want to get by, and they're just, they're busy, and that's normal. We we shouldn't look down on them, but how much of an opening is that?
0: Yeah, I don't know if apathetic is the right word. They they have priorities that probably make a hell of a lot more sense for them. Correct. You know, jobs and family, and and it's true. Like, I hate this this conservative phrase, um, low information voter, mm-hmm. and economists have perhaps an equally bad phrase, rationally ignorant. But but normal people probably don't want to spend their days um, parsing Federal Reserve behavior to try to figure out why why they're. Investment's not worth as much as it used to be because the dollars in their wallet aren't um, But that's our job. Like we we need to lower the barrier to entry so that people can care a little bit about that stuff. But part of it is 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 finding these sort of gateway issues.
1: Yeah, and I'm always trying to find them. I think there's uh, there's little stories that I mean, any of the current events, you know, I think that's a big challenge I have to anybody in the liberty sphere, which is take these current events and be prepared to to deliver a positive message of liberty. Um, but figure out how to do that so that it correlates. I mean, we can't you can't always go back to talking about how we need to audit the Federal Reserve, you know, when somebody asks you about foreign policy in uh, Uruguay. I mean you, know, you can't you've got to be able to really have conversations about the topics of the day, yeah. and kind of show why our brand is uh, the ideological way forward.
0: And then start chanting. Sure. And, and the Fed—that always you, is the you end. Gotta, game. You got You got to get there. That's the end game. <laughs> right. But so let's uh, um, let's let's talk a little bit about about the the culture on campus. I mean, we're we're hearing all these horror stories, and you guys have had some tremendous. You've had some success, but but starting with some some fairly anti speech authoritarian stuff that's been going on on campus, specifically to y'all activists. Give us give us a sense for what what the hell's going on
1: yeah sure so I will tell you this when I took over the organization um, we had a, a decision to make there were all of these groups that were complaining hey look campus is biased towards those that want to speak out a lot of conservative groups are you know painting campuses with liberal bias and they're shutting us down and I'm a math teacher by trade and so I s- took a step back and I said like well how are they doing this like I mean l- legitimately like how are they able to, put this together in a way where it's like they have the ability to do this. Like, is it a rule? Is it just an environment or culture that we're creating? What exactly is it? And if you peel everything back and you look to see how are these campus administrators or campus bureaucrats able to decide who speaks, what they're saying, what groups are recognized, you know, all the things you're seeing complaints about, you realize it's all in the policy. It's all in the code of conduct. This is what they go to as their excuse to do it. Mm -hmm. and so at Young Americans for Liberty we actually launched something called the National Fight for Free Speech Campaign and it's very different from what you'd expect it is not hey we want an advantage for our liberty beliefs it is no look we want to create a level playing field for everybody
0: and it's not like it's not owning the left and and inviting the most outrageous speaker conceivable just to trigger the other guys right right and I think a lot of groups which which I I think is a little ridiculous I, I get it but I I I, think I, don't, they, I don't think it helps.
1: They make a mistake in that, yeah, it's it's more about inciting outrage when we really want to have conversations, and it really makes our efforts that much more credible because they're shutting down speakers that, I mean, I would argue are not controversial. Yeah. Um, and it kind of paints, if you really want to paint the left as being somebody who they they there's just no room for any other opinion, well, when they shut down the folks that aren't controversial, it's even that much more hypocritical. Yeah. So we took a principled stance on free speech to do this. And we partner, you know, when we have incidents that happen on campus, we partner with FIRE or ADF, some of these free speech organizations that provide attorneys. And we've now won 51 different cases. Um, And they all happen differently. Some of them, it's a lawsuit. Some it's a threat of a lawsuit. Some our students are petitioning and the university says, hey, you're right. Um, But it's really been a cool process to create a playing field on campus where it doesn't guarantee they're going to hear the Liberty message, but it guarantees that we have the right to reach the students. And if you total just the the student body on each of the 51 campuses, it's over a million, 1.1 million students. And so to us, this is a way to kind of fight back a lot of the intolerance, but I think it's a gift to, to bureaucrats because what I'm saying is, Hey, look, you don't have to decide now. Just let everybody speak. Yeah. Because the problem is if if this is the free speech zone, you know, this little coaster here and they say that's the free speech zone on campus, you have to speak there. Well, now they're in charge of jurisdiction and enforcement. So if Bernie's groups over here outside of the free speech zone, pushing for a 90 percent universal income tax. But nobody says anything. And then all of a sudden our chapters over here handing out pocket constitutions, they could shut down. Well, now we can say oh, there's bias. I don't even want to have that dilemma. So if you just get rid of it and everybody can speak on public, taxpayer-funded campuses, now there's no problem. Now ideas can be heard. And my argument to every single person who says campus is liberal, create an atmosphere where people can hear your ideas. And in the free marketplace of ideas, we, as the liberty crowd, we should truly believe that people will come to us when they hear all ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what is, the, what is the legal standing of, of defending free speech on campus? I'd, I'd like to believe that the First Amendment matters, particularly on publicly funded universities, um, but is it is it true? Can you win in court or is most of what you're doing just the threat of an embarrassment of a legal fight enough to rein in some of these more authoritarian speech police?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So we have 51 wins. Uh, I would tell you right now we have about 20 to 30 cases that are, hey, the incidents happened and we are in motion, which you can look at as a good thing or a bad thing. I say it's good because it's kind of starting the snowball effect. Mm -hmm. We've had one loss. So the ratio has been great. We have one that went to court where the judge, I won't get into it, but let's just say, you know, it was it was not a friendly decision on the, the side of free speech. Yeah. But the ratio is still there that I haven't lost hope. I'm actually very optimistic about the court system. Um, but I will tell you, I mean, there's still a lot of emotional things that happen. Um, just a few of them, we had three students get arrested in Michigan for handing out pocket constitutions. I wish there was something to that story that was like, "Oh, you're being sensational." This three students handing out pocket constitutions, told they have to go to a free speech zone. They didn't. They got arrested, put in jail overnight.
0: We had another incident. That's too- <laughs> that's insane. That's yeah, that, let's, that let's is not absolutely. I I just can't even conceive that that's the best the case. part
1: about that is the irony because what gives them permission to be there and to not get arrested is legitimately the document they're handing right 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 it's like here sir I'll show you you know this this like overzealous bureaucrat I'll show you what gives me the right
0: to be here it's this First Amendment so it's it's a little bit like Gillette going through airport security and the the uh, metal detector with a metal copy of the Bill of Rights in his pocket uh, <laughs> um, and. They, they don't even get it. Right. They still don't get he's it. He's got the Fourth Amendment yeah. underlined on it. Yeah.
1: He's a hero. Um, and then, like, other incidents we run into, uh, we had a Navy veteran up in Massachusetts who was told he cannot hand out the pocket Constitution because the Constitution was not an approved document. And, and what they're saying is, I mean, honestly, the bureaucrat's just an idiot. Mm-hmm. He's not saying, like, the Constitution is not approved. What he's saying is every document you hand out has to be approved. Right. But talk about the hypocrisy of a Navy vet. The guy put his life on the line to defend the Constitution. He's in school, and it's like you're telling him he can't hand it out. And then one other one I'll share with you is uh, Tulane University. We had a crazy incident a couple weeks ago where a student was outed for being a part of YL. They're very active at the Tulane campus, love our chapter there. They're, They're really out there recruiting and bringing new people to the ideas. And so they started doxing our members, outing them on social media, giving out their names. And this was some radical leftists. Mm -hmm. And so they put out there that Peyton Lofton was a member of Young Americans for Liberty. Well, like 48 hours later, somebody lit his dorm room door on fire. And you could say, well, is that the university? No, but I'm telling you, that's the culture. That's kind of the, I don't want to say the absurdity. I don't believe it's a norm. And that should give us hope. But it'll show you the absurdity of some of the political environment on campus that is to shut down people at all expense and that's why I think the free speech efforts we've got to take a principled stance because I don't want to push back I don't want to push back and I don't want to punish the left I want everyone to have an equal playing field because at the end of the day principles of liberty they're going to do a pretty bang-up job at saving the country so that's that's what I'm trying to promote
0: well let's go to there because I I think that that's probably a good way to to wrap up this conversation I um, I wonder where you are obviously you think that you can succeed succeed at what you're doing. You wouldn't be doing it otherwise, because there's there's other uh, you could you could work less and make more money doing other <laughs> things, right? I'm dying to get into the yeah. the
1: private sector, the for-profit world.
0: But um, we're not we're not doing this for fun. We're doing this because we we think we can make a difference. And and you mentioned all we need is a level playing field. I feel like you know the old days when I had to find a book by Ayn Rand um, are fundamentally different than your entry into the movement when you could find a YouTube video. We had Justin Amash on 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 the show and, and he, he tells this great story about how he couldn't, he couldn't figure out where he fit in the world philosophically until he Googled it and he found a Wikipedia page about Frederick Hayek. Right. And and that that's happening writ large now, so all we need is a level playing field and, and we won't get into to censorship and, and bias and all that, um, are you are you optimistic? Um, because there's there's a lot of guys trying to shut us down. Yeah, on campus, I like you I think you're being too generous with campus bureaucrats. I I think they do have an agenda. It's sort of a natural agenda that you know bureaucrats um, like bureaucracy because that's how they feed it's control. Themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: you familiar with a guy named Gary Vee? You ever see his videos? Um, he is somebody who. He's he's a, you know, self-help type guy, but very, very in your face, you know, no excuses. And if you ask me if I'm optimistic, I'm extremely optimistic, but I'm also not afraid to challenge the liberty community to say enough with the fucking bullshit excuses. Am I okay to curse? Um, I mean, legitimately enough with the excuses. Like, when are we going to sit down and say, okay, we've got to build content that's going to excite people. We've got to figure out how to reach normal folks. The left's doing it. The establishment right's doing it. I mean... People have been doing it for the past 200 years, and now the access to build content, the access to have a platform, the access to have ideas and speak and be heard, everyone has the ability to do that. So I'm kind of at the point where I don't want to say I'm pulling my hair out. What I do want to say, though, is I am really going to push anybody to learn how to be effective, and create measurable, tangible results. There's plenty of opportunity out there, and it's not just electorally, right? It's about content. It's about reaching people where they're at, not dumbing things down, I'm always gonna say that, but simplifying without watering down the message. And so I'm optimistic with our strategy because I feel like uh, our, our grand plan here is to elect 250 of these state liberty legislators by the end of 2022, but that's just the beginning. I mean, that is legitimately the beginning. We need to continue to have content to get new people to us. I'm just trying to give 250 people a platform, so that they can share the content, they can be looked at in their local community, they can be somebody that can build for the principles of liberty. But I I think that it's it's our argument to lose. Our ideas fundamentally make sense. If we introduce people to the philosophy, they get excited about it. It adds up. The free market works. Individual liberty. Leave people the hell alone. Bring our troops home. Treat others the way we want to be treated. I mean, all of these things, to me, are the American way. And I think if we stop looking at it like, oh, the liberty community is fringe and we've only reached 2% of the population, that's bullshit. People are what we are, which is they believe in liberty. They want to be left to hell alone. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. You taught me that. That is the message that if we can get the masses to hear that, I think it's ours to lose. And I think I think anybody that's not optimistic, where can we go from here? I mean, there's so much room to gain. And I think everything when it comes to Uber, Airbnb, all of these kind of market sharing, all that should show you that in the the sharing economy that the free market is kind of winning at the moment. Um, And, yeah, you got Bernie, you got AOC on the scene, but that should be a challenge to us. Focus on the ideas, not their personality and hitting them for some stupid comment they made. Focus on presenting liberty to everyone in the mainstream and the challenge is ours. The only excuse is for those that want to be the lazitarians, that want to talk about the ideas, they want to call me out, call you out, call our organizations out because they don't want to take the time to actually de- build the content, to deliver it in a way that's going to reach people. So am I optimistic? Yes, but it's on us and every single person out there watching. We've got to innovate to reach people.
0: Okay, I think you just made the sale there. Um, I hate to add on that, but I have to add that I've never heard the word lazy-tarian before, but I, I, I know a couple of those guys. Um, so you you just you just closed the deal. Everybody watching this is is now saying, okay, Cliff, I'm in. How do we get involved with Young Americans for Liberty?
1: So there's a few ways. Uh, you can go to our website, yaliberty.org, but more specifically, and a, a call to action I have for everyone. When it comes to Operation Win at the Door, we're always looking for help, one, to fund our door knockers. Two, we're looking for more people to join as members and become door knockers. And three, we're looking for candidates. Those are our three big things. So if you go to yaliberty.org slash door, you can recommend a candidate. So those folks at the state level, you know, you've got somebody in your backyard, they seem to be a liberty candidate, or even if they're on the edge, push them to fill out our survey because we want to get them on the record so we can hold them accountable to liberty issues. And then on social, you know, at YA Liberty, um, we're always putting up some fun memes. We're, we're not quite at your video level yet, but we're getting there. Um, but we would love to have folks involved. It doesn't matter if you're a student, if you're an investor, um, or just somebody in the community who really wants to hold these politicians accountable. Uh, the more surveys we get, you know, the more we're able to kind of push people to get those roll call votes, Ya um, YALIberty.org is where you can get involved.
0: Cool. Cheers. Cheers. Make Liberty win. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Make sure to subscribe and rate our podcast so we can reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.